seated. <clears throat> we return to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, to read of trial and denial in uh, the Lord and Peter's life, and what lessons we might learn from failure. From John, chapter 18, start uh, reading back in verse 10, where uh, just before we left off last time, and we'll read down to verse 27. John 18, starting in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you? In the garden with him. Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we uh, pray that in these last hours of our Lord's life, 
you would continue to teach us what it means to follow him as disciples to, frankly, are too often the unfaithful ones. What does it mean for us to follow such a faithful Savior? We pray that you would instruct us from your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Failure is one of the best teachers there is. I failed at quite a few things in my life. I've certainly had relationships and friendships sadly fail. I totally blew my interview for a full scholarship at UVA. Just as well, some of you hokies say. I totaled two cars and a motorcycle before I turned 21. But none since, thankfully, because I did learn a few important things from those failures. We often learn more from our failures than from our successes. Not only do we find out what's not working, we find out about ourselves also. We gain some much-needed humility as well as maturity. We gain some sympathy toward others who struggle as well. We can gain a growth mindset that's very important. And as Christians, we also learn something very important about our God and about his grace. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And spiritually speaking, then, failure is a prerequisite for success. You ever think about that? Until we truly know who we are, or we will not truly love Jesus for who he is. Well, if you've never failed the Lord, you can leave now because I don't have anything that I can say to you today. All right, for the rest of us that remain, I hope that our study will be both helpful and encouraging. Because the truth is, whether by unchristlike behavior or by unchristlike words, we have all joined Peter in one way or another in saying, I do not know this man, I am not a disciple of Jesus. And so, if you can relate to such failures, or even if you failed more seriously, I hope that this passage today can help you. But I need to begin by making sense of what is admittedly a little bit of, of a confusing cast of characters in our passage. So they arrested Jesus, and we read that they brought him to the home of Annas, who's introduced to us in verse 13 as uh, Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. But then when Jesus replies to Annas later, such as verse 22, they strike him and say, hey, do you answer the high priest like that? it was the father-in-law of the high priest. And then in verse 24, we read that Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. You say, what's going on? Well, you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago in our study of 2 Peter that the Bible is a historical book, and as such, it is as hard to understand sometimes as real history is. In fact, Annas had been the high priest from AD 6 to 15, but then was forced out of office by the Roman governor. 
Pilate's predecessor. Now, the law of Moses had said that the high priest was high priest for life. And the Jews, for their part, deeply resented the Roman interference in their religious matters. So even though Annas, at least in the eyes of Rome, is officially out, he is still regarded by many as the legitimate high priest. And uh, by the way, he's also the patriarch of the high priestly family. No fewer than five of Annas's sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas served as high priest over the years. So he is the papa bear and... As Luke points out in his gospel, uh, they really regarded them both as high priest. Uh, Luke writes in chapter 3, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. So uh, Jesus here in the passage, just to be clear, is being questioned by Annas, who is, according to the law of Moses, the high priest, but according to Rome, is the ex-high priest. Annas is trying unsuccessfully to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Failing to do that, he'll send him to Caiaphas. Now, you'll also want to know, who is this other disciple who shows up here uh, of the high priest's family who is able to get not only himself in without, a, without any words, as he was known to the family, uh, but is able to speak then to the girl at the gate, who he obviously knows, and gets Peter in the courtyard as well. Well, this is almost certainly the Apostle John, who throughout the letter refers to this other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're all the time wondering, who is this disciple? And finally, in the second to last verse of the book, he says that this disciple is none other than your author. So, this is his eyewitness account. Through whatever means, he, was, he, he knew the family of Annas, he'd been there, he knew the girl, he was not only able to get in without a word, he was able to get his friend in, no problem. So let's begin then, having explained some of these uh, uh, features, with lessons from Peter's failure. These lessons from Peter's failure, which is one of the best-known spiritual failures of all time. A moment of cowardice that prepared Peter for a lifetime of bravery. Lessons from Peter's failure. Um, first... We need to see what set him up for failure to begin with, as it does the same for us. So my first point or lesson is this. We need to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Lessons from failure, number one. We need to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Pick up reading with uh, Peter drawing his sword, striking the high priest, trying to get his head probably, only getting his ear. And verse 11, Jesus says, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Um, as we have seen many times in this book, Peter simply could not wrap his head around the concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die. And he wasn't alone. When Jesus first began to explain these things to the disciples, how he was going to be handed over by the chief priest to the Romans and be crucified, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for saying such a thing. And Peter said to the Lord, Never, 
this shall never be to you. And the Lord replied to Satan, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Several more times after that, Jesus repeated his same explanation, but it says they didn't understand because these disciples had in their mind a picture of Jesus that didn't match reality. They, they had in mind a conquering and reigning Jesus without a cross. They didn't understand that he would first be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They would not understand, or they could not understand. The Lord himself was perfectly clear. But it was this persistent failure, this persistent failure to understand the Lord's way, the way of the cross that he'd explained many times that led Peter to draw the sword and to fight for Jesus. And he thought he was doing something good, something the Lord wanted him to do. But... He needed to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Okay? And how many times has happened throughout history that the church or its members have done something that they thought was the Lord's will? Often foolishly, if not brutally. Working against the God's cause, not understanding his ways. We need to have an open ear for what the Lord is telling us and telling us and not foolishly saying, we've got the answer, or we know better. And whenever you think that God has to work in your life in a certain way, that this is the way that he's going to do it, but he doesn't, or he doesn't conform to your expectations, you are going to be spiritually vulnerable as well in the same way. Maybe you thought you knew what God had next for you, and then it totally fell apart. It painfully didn't happen. Maybe you prayed fervently for something and the Lord didn't answer as you desired. Look out. It's easy in your disappointment and confusion and hurt to succumb to temptation because when we have it figured out and we are dictating our plan to God and we are acting according to our ways rather than his ways, we are setting ourselves up for failure, spiritual failure. We need to understand that God's ways are not our ways. Second, we need to trust in the Lord so that our strength doesn't become our weakness. We need to trust in the Lord so that our strength doesn't become our weakness. Let me explain. Um, Peter, who was a, a, a man of some natural character, was, was, was all ready to fight for Jesus being a, a bold man, a man of some natural bravado, perhaps. Peter must have thought that that uh, big test, the test that Peter was told earlier about by Jesus, that that big test had now come, that it was going to be a valiant sword battle in front of all. Just the kind of thing that a proud man like Peter could handle. In fact, that test was going to come later at the very point where his pride made him vulnerable by being associated with Jesus in the wrong crowd. His big test was not coming from a swordsman, but from a servant girl. And the same pride that made 
Peter, Peter look courageous to fight in front of everyone made him deny Jesus when it was more convenient to do so. When no one else was around. Well, what sort of courage do you have? If being a Christian meant fighting, I think that would be easy for some of us. Too many Christians, it seems, are always up for a fight. You know what I mean. But that's not courage. That's not real courage. It's pride, bravado, the same thing that also makes us clam up in front of others or even deny the Lord in practical ways in our lives. Being willing to fight is not usually strength or courage. You notice that Peter's boldness or bravado also led him to take some unusual risks. He's able to follow Jesus right into the courtyard of Annas. And, um, well, he couldn't blend in as easily as John could, who, who knew the family and the servants and wouldn't raise any eyebrows at all. Um, Peter perhaps didn't realize that his boldness was too often impetuousness and that courage was actually too often bravado and that that good thing in him often went too far. And the same thing that made him appear strong in certain circumstances was the same thing that made him weak and vulnerable in others. So we need to realize that our strength can also be our weakness. And, I mean, this is true in the natural world. Some of us are very analytical. And left unchecked, that can lead us to have unrealistically high standards for others and ourselves, to have trouble delegating, to frustrate people who understand what is really good enough. Some of us are naturally assertive, but unchecked, we become aggressive or abrasive or arrogant and domineering unwilling to consider the feelings of others. You could do this with virtually any character trait. Some of us are very relational. And unchecked, that can make us overly accommodating, not holding others accountable, being too agreeable, or simply talking too much. Well, meanwhile, while we are playing to our strengths, we think, spiritual virtues like humility like dependence upon the Lord, like caring more about the interests of others than of our own, that such important godly virtues are neglected and even sound to us like weakness when we would rather play to our strength. But those very weaknesses are the things that we need to temper what is good and strong in us so that our strength doesn't, spiritually speaking, become our weakness. Whatever strength it is that makes us trust in ourselves and not in the Lord is in reality a weakness. When Jesus warned Peter that Satan was going to sift him like wheat, Peter protested in front of everyone, hey, I'm ready to, to go with you to prison and to death. And he put himself above all the other disciples in the same breath. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And when the Lord urged him that night repeatedly to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation, he was good. Going to take a nap. 
trusting in your own strength of commitment or devotion to the Lord or whatever it is, is a sure way to fail. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. And it says also that when we are weak and we know it, then we are strong because then we look to the Lord and his strength. So you see how we need these virtues of weakness and dependence and humility and so forth to temper those natural strengths in us, lest our strengths become our weaknesses. So lesson one, we need to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Lesson two, we need to trust in the Lord. So that our strength does not become our weakness. Third, we need to beware the small failures that lead us to bigger failures. We need to beware the small failures that lead us to bigger failures. Our third lesson from failure. Uh, verse 17, the servant girl asks Peter, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? You, you notice it's asked in such a way, both in English and Greek, that the expected answer is no. The, the question itself provides the way of escape. Although Peter may have winced inside when he agreed with the girl, denied following Jesus, he might have thought, well, you know, at least now I'm in the clear. It's just a servant girl, no one else around, doesn't really matter. It seems so easy, so convenient, such a simple solution to all the potential problems if he had answered differently. She virtually encouraged him to lie. The woman whom you gave me, she gave now. Okay, all right. It's so easy to rationalize why it's not a big deal to do what just a few hours later he had solemnly promised the Lord he would never do. Well, Peter's asked the question again, you notice, in exactly the same way in verse 25. Again framed so that the negative answer is the expected answer, which makes it so easy to agree and maintain the first lie. You're not one of his disciples, are you? No. No. And having said no once before, it was hard to change the story now. He denies the Lord again. But he, he, he set his course. When the question at last comes the third time, now the devil's subtlety is abandoned altogether. As, as now a relative who is there stands up and says, Didn't I see you? in the garden with him. And Peter now has to stand up and lie like a rug, to lie like the coward he had in fact become. And then the rooster crows. Um, this is an important lesson from failure. You know, we're always giving in to the small things at the beginning at first, seemingly minor enticements of temptation and justifying us to ourselves. It, it's no big deal. The Lord is gracious and it's all for the best anyway. And thereby we are drawn steadily and inexorably toward the power of a temptation that at last we find that we will not and therefore cannot escape. Not that there is no way of escape, but if you will not, 
then you cannot. And that's why the masters of the Christian life will all tell you the same thing. Don't take that first step. Beware the first steps. As uh, Owen puts it to his students, venture all on the first uh, temptation, right? The first struggle. If you have taken these steps, you realize just how smooth that road is down. And I'm warning you, you need to get off the downhill path immediately and stop making excuses. Stop saying you've got it all under control and that God is a forgiving God. No, no, no. The longer you stay on that path, the more temptation has you in its grip. You know, the, the prophet Daniel, as a young man, was taken into exile in Babylon with some of the other nobles' sons in order to turn him and them into Babylonian officials. He, the king wanted to make them Babylonians. And the, the first step in that, the first test anyway that's recorded, is when the king's delicious food and wine was set before them. And so here he is having to be faced with this problem right away. Is he going to make a big deal about a little food? So he asks, can I get out of this? And the guy overseeing him says, no. Well, maybe he should pick his battles. Maybe he should wait until he's gained a position of some influence and then he'll stand for God. Well, by that time, if Daniel had been disobeying the Lord all along the way, he would continue disobeying him later and have little thought for doing so in all likelihood, right? For the longer you stay on that downhill road of sin, the more it kills your heart and soul for God, right? You, 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 you like your teenagers, right? This is why we're constantly making, having this conversation with you because those choices that you are making now, you say, well, you know, I'm young. There's plenty of time to change my path, right? There's nothing uh, set in stone here. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The longer you stay on that path of temptation and sin, those choices you make, that character that you are forming, those relationships you are building, those directions that you are setting, that is your direction. And once set, it is hard to get off. Trust the older people in the congregation who are all saying amen, but are too embarrassed to say it. It's hard to get off that path when you are old. There we go. The longer you're in that sin, the more it kills your heart and soul for God. Beware. The choices now before you are easy, relatively speaking. Make the right ones. C.S. Lewis put the lesson this way in his uh, Weight of Glory essay. Like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you save your castle only by losing your bishop. In other words, he wants to put you in some dilemma where one way or another, you're going to be off the path. You, you have to watch the setup. Beware the setup. Spiritual watchfulness avoids those pleasant small steps that lead you and others to spiritual ruin. Lesson number three from failure. Beware the small failures that lead to the bigger failures. And fourth, 
we need to realize that we tend to fear man more than God. We need to realize that we tend to fear man more than God. Verse 26, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denies it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. If you miss the significance of the rooster, it's because chapter 13, verse 38, earlier that very night, Jesus told Peter, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most surely I say to you, that the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And that rooster, John is letting us know, made Peter remember. In fact, uh, Luke uh, lets us know that at that very moment, the Lord also turned and looked at Peter with a look that must have pierced his heart. I'm sure he never forgot that look. And he went out and wept bitterly because of it. And how many times has the same thing not happened to every Christian? How many times have we found ourselves acting in the ways which are, in fact, a betrayal of everything we believe that are nothing short of contemptible for the people who know what we know and who have been shown the infinite love and mercy that we have been shown? And how many times have we been unmanned in ways that we blush to think about and will never speak about in the simplest things. Now, we naturally want the approval of others. I mean, I hope you do. There'd be something wrong with you if you didn't. We naturally want the approval of others. But we need to realize that we do tend to fear man more than God. There is that tendency within us. And when we are only worrying about what others think, then we are forgetting the most important thing of all, what does God think? And our aim must always be first to please Him, even if no one else is pleased. That's too frequently happens. Proverbs 29, 25 warns, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Uh, and by the way, this is not the last time that uh, Peter's courage and loyalty to the Lord disintegrates in the midst of a, the wrong crowd. Um, years later in Antioch, uh, Paul records that he had to rebuke Peter to his face in front of all for what was nothing less then the old yellow streak appearing once again. For certain Jews had come down from Jerusalem and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles and then taught the church to do the same. And Peter just went along with the crowd, probably trying to save face or blend in. But at last, that's not what happened. As Paul got there and he had to rebuke him in front of everyone. And to his eternal credit, Peter repented, right? Failure hurts. And we don't like it. But failure does bring its own lessons. It's a brutal teacher, but you learn. And for the child of God, 
failure is never final. It's that growth mindset. For the child of God, failure is never final. None of us is ever going to be free of this struggle of the fear of man for the rest of our lives here. So we must learn the lesson and face the problem squarely and fight it every day of our life, never forgetting the danger that is always with us. We tend to fear man more than God. My fourth lesson. So here are the four lessons from failure I'd like to put before you. One, we tend to underestimate, excuse me, we, we need to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Two, we need to trust in the Lord so that our strength doesn't become our weakness. Three, we need to beware the small failures that lead us to bigger failures. And four, we need to realize that we tend to fear man more than God. You can see all those in the text. But I've saved the greatest lesson of all for last, number five. Though we fail, we always can trust in our faithful Savior who never fails us. Though we fail, we always can trust in our faithful Savior who never fails us. Did you notice the way that John weaved together in this passage the account of Peter's denial and the Lord's trial? Back and forth, back and forth it goes. It contrasts at every step the faithful, calm, deliberate courage of Jesus Christ with the cowardly, craven compromise of Peter. One writer puts it this way. John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Where Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Another writer pointed out that Jesus' twice repeated I am statements in the garden a few verses earlier are here contrasted with Peter's twice repeated denial, I am not, I am not. Uh, that, that does seem especially to stand out in the uh, original. Once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Jesus said, ego a me, ego a me. Peter says, uke me, uke me. Not me, I'm not. Peter is questioned by a servant girl and gives in immediately to temptation. Jesus is threatened with real danger, the prospect of torture and death, and remains steadfast. Jesus is a contrast to all four of the lessons that we just described. He does all things well. Jesus understood the Father's plan and submitted fully to it, though it was going to be painfully difficult, right? Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? He knew it was coming. He knew his father's plan. He knew the way, and he submitted to it, even though it was painfully difficult. Second, he had all the strength of God himself, and yet still entrusted himself to the Lord, as Peter put it in his first letter to the churches of Asia, that Jesus did not even threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
Jesus didn't give in for a moment. He witnessed the good confession. We read elsewhere. Uh, fourth, he boldly answers the high priest and the man who struck him. He knew, he knew it was coming that night, and he did not fear the face of man. You see, Jesus suffered the same temptations we suffer. In fact, much worse. You know, un unlike us, he never gives in. And, and you know how the power of temptation grows over time, right? How the, how the longer you resist, yeah, the worse it gets sometimes, and you finally give in after resisting it only so long. Well, the Lord resisted every last temptation to the bitter end in his dependence upon his Father in heaven and obedience to the commandments of God. And don't, don't misunderstand me in going over this again. Uh, my, my point is, see, we need to be like Jesus. No, no, no. My, well, true enough. And we will be like him when we see him. So, but my point is this. Jesus has perfectly lived the life at every point that you and I should have lived and did not. Every area of failure, he has met with his success. And he didn't live that life for himself. Do you know why he did it? He did it for you, sir. He did it for you, ma'am. He did all this for one reason and one reason only, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. In other words, laying them on Jesus. That's what the cross is about. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, like the beggar girl that marries the king, right? He gets her debts. She gets the crown. That he's come to take away your sin and give you his righteousness. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He came to take the very wages of sin that you have earned and deserve, which is death, and to give you the gift which is his alone to give, which is eternal life. And so ever since he came, this has been the only real question facing mankind. Do you want to stand before God in your poor righteousness or in his perfect righteousness? Do you want to have to answer for every day of your life or for every day of his life? Have you ever heard the old story about the bishop and the barber? Well, it goes like this. A bishop goes to a barber one day to have his hair cut. And while the barber's cutting his hair, the bishop asks him whether he went to church. Well, no, the barber said, I'm not a church-going man myself, but I do my best. And I'm sure the Lord will be willing to accept my best. After the haircut, the bishop got up from the chair and mentioned to the barber, Hey, I see you need a haircut yourself. <laughs> well, he said, yes, I suppose it, it is true. It's time. Well, said the bishop, why don't you sit down right here? I'm going to cut it myself. No, 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 you're not the barber, he says. You don't know how to cut hair. Well, said the bishop, I'll do my best. <laughs> and you'll be satisfied with my best, won't you? Ah, said the bishop. You won't even have your hair cut by somebody doing the best. 
But you think God is going to take your entire life because you say you've done your best? Well, my point is, whose best do you want God to judge you on in that day? Yours or Christ's? For the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is that his life can be yours. His righteousness yours. Your sins his. Your judgment laid upon him. His kingdom yours. His glory yours. That you can be as righteous as Jesus was righteous for you. That God may be both just at the cross and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. That's the deal. You can be as righteous as Jesus was righteous for you. Or you can stand before God with your own daily cowardly failings you choose. You look at Peter and you look at Jesus and make your choice. Because Peter was a much better man than, than, than I am. And he learned that day for sure he needs Jesus. You see yourself standing in the day of judgment and you make a true choice. Peter was a great man, but he was a man like us. And the greatest lesson that came home to him that night from a night of failure is that he truly needed a savior. And though we fail, we can always trust in our faithful savior who never fails. That even as it's written, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In conclusion, Peter had some surprises that night, but there were no surprises for Jesus. He'd already told Peter what was going to happen. He told him he would deny him three times before the rooster. In other words, as craven as Peter was in lying and disowning the Lord who loved him so that he was despising himself by the end of the night. The Lord knew all that was going to go on, what would happen, and why. The Lord knew it all. And, and Peter, therefore, learns that in every situation of our lives, no matter what, we, we are in the Lord's hands. We are in his hands. And, you know, it's interesting here that the word used for charcoal fire in verse 18 is only used one other time in the New Testament when Jesus restores Peter at the end of chapter 21. And I really don't like to take these words and say, well, look how it's used here in this other foreign context. But uh, John, uh, a, a very uh, uh, clever literary uh, uh, writer here, astute, astute writer, um, I, I think is certainly connecting these two fires with these words. For there, in chapter 21, Jesus kindles a charcoal fire, same word, to cook breakfast for the disciples. And at the first fire in our passage, Peter denied the Lord. But there, at that second fire, the Lord restored Peter, inviting us to draw the contrast, probably. And if you have failed the Lord at that first fire of temptation... He welcomes you then to come to that second fire of restoration and forgiveness and grace. And perhaps you thought that you would never 
fall. But you did. Well, here is the one who's full of mercy, who knows all about every weakness and every temptation that we will ever face, who knew it all ahead of time, who has also been touched with the feelings of our weakness, who has every sympathy. And he has said, we prayed it earlier, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. You do that and you'll have learned some lessons well. Do that and every time you fall, you will be falling forward. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you know what is in every heart. Hearts that make occasions of strength an occasion for spiritual pride and failure. Well, we are ashamed it is so. We are ashamed that we find ourselves in so many ways like Peter. In fact, Peter coming off so much better than us. We are ashamed. We ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for all that you have done to bless us, keep us, restore us, and forgive us. We say, Father, it is painful. It is humiliatingly painful. And there are pained hearts who are here today. People who also wince every time they hear their rooster crowing. But you have heard the cries and prayers of those who have called to you. And we pray that you would strengthen us in our weakness. We pray that your grace would be sufficient. That your power should be made perfect in our every infirmity. And that through every failing that we could find that you are to us all that we truly need. That we might live evermore and serve you well to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.